On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about the federal government's grant, gift, whatever you want to call it, of $100 million for steel and aluminum producers, small and medium-sized ones anyway, and whether that is a good use of money for the number of jobs that they say it's going to save. We're also chatting about curling, if you can somehow make the segue from one to the other. There is a vast difference between the amount of money that the women's curlers make for the Scotties Tournament of Hearts champions and the men for winning the briar. Is it because of sexism or is it because one brings in a lot more revenue? We'll talk about that and a lot more coming up on the podcast. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. The federal government, the liberal government has announced that they will be investing, it will be investing, $100 million into mostly small and medium-sized steel producers, steel and aluminum producers. It's to help with the tariffs and all that kind of stuff. You know all the story that's been going on for a long, long time. want to bring in our friend Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business to chat about this because it's to me there's a couple interesting parts of this story and I want to get Marvin to, uh, to explain this. Marvin, how are you tonight? Well, I'm fine. So glad to be talking to you when there's still the light in the sky. I, you know, I said it when we were coming in. It is, uh, it, it just picks up the spirit, doesn't it, when it's bright out still? It doesn't feel right somehow. I only mm-hmm. talk to you after dark, it seems like, and now we're back to brightness. Yes, or in blizzards. <laughs> so, And there's no snow today either, so we're all well. It's all weird. The federal government yesterday, as I say, uh, pledged $100 yep. million dollars towards the small and medium steel producers. Uh, right. First of all... $100 million to you and me is an awful lot of money in the grand scheme of the steel industry. Is it a lot of money? No. Uh, so uh, let me come back to the first thing you said, pledged. I think that's the best way to say it. What they've done is they've set aside a pot of money, and they're basically inviting small-sized, medium-sized steel and aluminum producers to, to submit requests for funding. The argument here is that these tariffs, which have been going on now for almost a year, have made it uncompetitive for many of our companies. So if you have got some idea on something you might do to help, say, reduce your costs or be more competitive, you can submit it. So let's say I'm ABC company, and I think if I can reduce my energy consumption, I can lower the price of my product and fight against the tariffs. But I need some help to invest in all those energy-efficient things. Well, guess what? This pot of money is sitting there for you. Um, there are roughly 300 companies who could apply for this money. So if they all apply, you divide $100 million by 300000 Well, wait a minute. We're talking about just maybe a couple hundred thousand dollars per company. It, it, it's nice, it's helpful, but it doesn't really change a whole lot of things. Is it similar in a weird kind of way to a few years ago when you could do green or energy-efficient fixes to your homes and your government would give you some sort of credit for that? Would, it be a, would that be a fair comparison? In, in a way, it isn't limited to energy efficiency. So instead, if you say, well, for me to compete against the United States, I need to build a special loading dock, which is going to allow a special kind of truck to come in and do something or or maybe be able to put stuff in containers and fly it over the United States to some other market. It's just you have to demonstrate that somehow you, if you could spend some money and do some retrofitting, it will allow you to compete. Our government is trying to help out. And, and the argument, again, is pretty simple here. Uh, it's all well and good for a, for a prime minister or a premier to sit there and say, I hear your pain, steel industry. I am feeling your pain, and I'm, I'm right there with you. I'm doing what I can to get the tariffs off, and they still are doing that. But they're saying to these companies as well, that's not enough. We've got to demonstrate our support in another way. So this is not unlike uh, a bigger amount of money. I believe in that case it was $400 million that was being made available 
for the oil sector in Alberta. Uh, we know you're hurting, so if there's something you need, here's another pot of money. Oftentimes, these pledges actually don't get completely used up because the companies are saying, this, this isn't my problem. I don't need to invest in something. Just make the barrier, in the case of uh, aluminum and steel, make those tariffs go away, and I'll be fine. I don't really need to invest in anything. But at least it's a, it's a statement by the government. It's a tangible way to demonstrate support. You, we, we've both used the word pledged. I didn't mean it as intentionally as you did. But uh, since that's the case, this is now money that is in the future. Is this going to be the case only? Is, is it only going to be available in months from now, say, I don't know, if the Liberals get reelected come the fall election? No, no, in that sense that this program, so I'm sure if you were in that industry, you could get some details, and I'm sure it's being administered by a nice group of people like the Business Development Bank of Canada, who could then also maybe tie you into other government programs that would help you, say, in exporting or something like this. This is just another way the government wants to assist the private sector in what it's doing. But they don't have a list of these projects already in hand. So this is a little different than, say, um, infrastructure money, where we know you need this bridge, so I'm announcing today I'm putting in my share of that bridge. Instead, this is a pot, and they're welcoming these applications. But it's nothing that the... Conservatives or the NDP, if they happen to be elected, that they would undo. So it, it is available shortly, though. It's not going to be right. months and months and months down the road. No, no, no it's, av- it's available now, and but you have to come up with your program idea. And so, like all bureaucracies, it takes a little while sometimes for the industry to respond. But that money is sitting there, and then if it doesn't get used, well, you know, they'll close their books in a year or two, and they'll then reallocate that money. This is just an ongoing thing the government does to support the private sector. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're talking about yesterday's announcement of $100 million towards the steel sector, small and medium-sized mostly companies that are producing steel and aluminum to help them deal with the tariffs and all the rest of that kind of stuff. Uh, Marvin Ryder from the Nagroot School of Business is joining us. And Marvin, the interesting, one of the most interesting parts about this yesterday, because as I was reading through all this, one number really leapt out at me. And that was when the government and the people with the government were saying that this will preserve 5,000 jobs. Now, 5,000 jobs is nothing to sneeze at. That's 5,000 families and people eating and all the rest of the stuff. We're not dismissing 5,000 jobs. But $100 million to preserve 5,000, that's, that's, if my math is any good at all, and it's usually not, that's government putting $20,000 per job down. That seems like a lot of money for this kind of thing. Yeah, God bless you for thinking that. So let me, let me come at this a slightly different way. So every time I hear about the government uh, giving a grant to the private sector and take the auto sector and we're going to install some new equipment, what have you, my rule of thumb is it's a million dollars of investment for every job that's created. So if uh, GM says they're putting in $400 million worth of tooling at a plant, chances are that's going to affect 400 jobs. Really? Wow. This is actually a fairly cost-effective thing. But remember what they said. It's not going to create work. It's going to preserve work. So what they've done is they've said the small and medium-sized steel and aluminum sectors employ across roughly 300 companies, basically around 15 people per company. So 15 times 300 gives you 4,500. It's a little more than that, so it's getting closer to 16 or 17. And if we can help them out, then we're going to keep those 5,000 jobs going. I know it's an awful lot of money, but once you start to break it down like this, $20,000 for a job, it's actually not that much once you start spending it on things like technology and bricks and mortar and, and those kinds of things that you need to keep those jobs competitive. 
Again, keep in mind that when they make these announcements, these programs are rarely fully subscribed. In other words, we've set aside $100 million, but whether it will all go out the door, whether there will be enough applications, I don't know. But it's what they can then point to to say to the industry, look, we heard your pain, and we're here to support you. We know that discussions are going on. We know there could be leader uh, changes in leadership, either north of the border or south of the border or both. We don't know with the next elections. What if the tariffs go away? What if the tariff situations get resolved? Is all this stuff still needed? Is this a, in other words, is this a short-term Band-Aid for what we're facing now that will resolve itself if this gets settled? Mm-hmm. So the way I would phrase it to you is this way. Yes, government is working to try to make those tariffs go away. There are people out there, Americans, American government officials, not Mr. Trump, but below him, saying that these tariff barriers could go away by the end of the month. Remember that Mexico has said they will not approve any U.S. uh, uh, free trade deal. There's even one dime of tariffs still on steel and aluminum. Canada's response has not been quite as strong. We've said it will be very, very difficult to approve afraid free trade deal if there's any tariffs and america's response has been hold on we think maybe by the end of march we're going to make them go away so the translation here again for this hundred million dollars is this may have been money that you were already thinking of investing you already wanted to make it available to help companies be competitive in canada and then given the tariffs you might have accelerated this so if the tariffs go away they're not going to cancel this program it will still be money well spent it'll help those canadian companies Uh, beyond competing in America, but competing on a world stage. So it may be that they simply accelerated it, but it certainly won't be cancelled if the tariffs go away. Now, we know that the federal budget is coming out, I believe it's a week from today that the the budget is going to be handed down. Uh, Is this then... We are in the year of an election. Uh, we know that the, I think the government announced a few weeks ago that they were running a surplus of, I think, $300 million. Is this the beginning of announcement after announcement after announcement after announcement that we are going to hear between now and October? Yes and no. So let's first go to your point. Is it a surplus? Well, it's not really a surplus. What they're doing is they're saying that the deficit that we projected, it isn't as big. It's not as big. It's a surplus on the bad deficit. Right. So... <laughs> So, you know, we said we were going to run a deficit of, let's say, $15 billion. Guess what? It's only 14.7. <laughs> so, you know, we're $300 million ahead of it. Spend, but, spend, spend. Well, I wouldn't quite go that far, but certainly in an election year, the budget they're bringing down next week is going to carry them into the election. And I certainly expect some sweeteners for you and I. Remember, also, they're putting on some dampers. Uh, uh, next month is when we're going to see the uh, carbon tax in Ontario after Doug Ford made it go away. Mr. Trudeau is going to bring it back, but he's going to want to soften the blow-in somehow. I would not be surprised. An idea that seems to be gaining traction, Andrew Scheer, of all people, has mentioned it, and therefore I'm not surprised that the Liberals will try to steal it away, and that might be to eliminate or begin to phase out the HST on your energy purchases, whether this be on uh, natural gas or oil or even electricity that you use to heat your home. Why are you paying the HST? Well, chances are the federal government is going to start to do that. So, yes, I expect you're going to hear some announcements of programs that are going to make your life better. I also suspect what you're going to hear are some things that the government doesn't have to do, but they're going to try to advocate on your behalf. Let me give you an example. You know, we all hate what we pay for these cell phones. Oh, my God, we have some of the highest rates in the world. So it wouldn't be surprised if in the budget it says something like, our government is going to work to bring those cell phone rates down. 
doesn't require the government to spend any money, but it does require the private sector to do that. You might remember a couple of years ago, one of the governments said they would do that with uh, car insurance payments, payments, bring your car insurance rates down. Expect some of those kind of pledges as well in an election year. Uh, how's our car insurance payments doing these days? <laughs> well, here's the good news. Here's the good news. They didn't go up uh, as okay. much as they were, but they didn't come down the 15% that were pledged. came down on average about 5%. And that's, again, when the government tries to tell the private sector to do things, they often don't do it quite the same way. Dr. Marvin Ryder, always appreciate the time. Thank you for doing this. Happy to help. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to bring in a friend of the show and a personal friend, Bob O'Neill from CHCA. Sir, how are you today? Oh, I'm, um, I'm actually shocked. At? Uh, just sort of <clears throat> reviewing a situation, I guess, with the... Uh, Curling Canada right now, um, which are you know addressing concerns about the differences in prize money in the national championships. Um, at the the winner of the Briar receives seventy thousand dollars, while the winner of the Scotties Tournament Tournament of Hearts, which is the women's championship national championship, earned thirty two thousand. Scott, that's a that's a that's a significant difference. That is a big difference. And so not knowing anything about this story, because I hadn't seen it until now, my question about this and my question with these things always is, before making a, a thought on it, what are the ratings and what are the uh, what is the attendance like? Are they the same? And if they're the same, then that's totally wrong. If the one side is bringing in millions of dollars more, then it's a discussion. Well, th- and this and this is where the, the you know the investigation leads you to to the these these sort of elements and the fact that the Briar it was better attended this year. Um, I haven't seen. I'd like to see actually, like I say, a ten-year sample. You know, but this year, in this year in particular, the Briar, which was held in Brandon, Manitoba, if I remember correctly, yeah, heart had, of curling world. You know, had a better attendance than the women's uh, Scotty's tournament of ch- the champions. At uh, in Sydney, Nova Scotia, also but, curling country. Yep, but the ratings were equal. So yeah, it's attendance better. Attendance better for the men, but TV numbers, which generally, I mean, just I remember from my year in Sportsnet because they were the first to get the Grand Slam of curling turn um, league going. And they got hopped on board because the the, the numbers on curling, it's kind of like the CFL. You don't think they're that big, but they actually are. You know, rather significant. It's this is one of the discussions that's always held all the time that comes up with people is the money that athletes make, especially we're talking about the guys in, you know, now Bryce Harper with his, you know, 350, whatever it was, million dollars contract with baseball and all this. And ultimately, while it's insane, we all understand that it's crazy. It's money that is stupid that these guys are getting. We do understand, though, Bubba, they're getting this money because that money is in the game. And we can have discussions all day long, and I've had this discussion. We should be charging less for tickets, less for beer, less for hot dogs. You can bring down the revenues, and then there's not as much money, so you don't have to pay the players as much. It's all connected. But there is that much money in the game. With something like this, I would just love to see them say, you know what, the players are going to get for curling, for whatever else, the players, are men and women, are going to get X percentage of the total revenues. Uh. And if then the men come in higher, they get more. If the women come in higher, they get more, but it's a relative scale. And then no one's fighting about this stuff. I don't know why it isn't. And, and, which opens up a different discussion. And I know that we've heard of similar sort of um, proposals. 
Um, I've heard this in different, you know, CBA talks with the CFL and the NFL, Major League Baseball, even the NBA. But then there's always the worry that the owners will say, just for a loo- I'll, I'll loosely say the owners, are fixing the books. And that the owners generally don't want to open up the books to the players to prove if that number is, is you know, uh, uh, you know the, what our money is generated from. You know, yeah, but sessions. you have it. You do have it with the NFL. We know what the NFL revenues are. We know what NHL revenues are because the, the, the salary cap is a percentage right. of the revenue that they're bringing in and they are audited independently audited books so how could you why could you not do the same with curling with any uh, with really any other sport and when we've we know that the uh, u.s women's soccer team is suing their federation saying yeah. that they have been paid less than the men that one is uh, that one to me is maybe even more complicated because it's really hard to know I mean, the, the men's team, the U.S. men's team is not as good as the U.S. women's team relative to their competition, but they do seem to bring in more revenue. So you've got this performance ba- versus size of crowds versus it's, if you simply went to a thing with these kind of sports and said, look, we are going to give the players 60%, let's say, of the revenues towards the winners, then it, no problem. Then it's just, it's, it's very simple and that's, you get what you earn. To this interesting discussion, Scott, and I think uh, Curling Canada right now, who are, you know, obviously the sport is sort of gaining popularity amongst many young people these days. And, I mean, all you have to do is look at these, the Briar and the Scotties, and you're seeing much younger competitors. So I guess this will be an interesting discussion, and, and Curling Canada certainly have something to, to have to, they're going to have to figure out in a hurry. And you know what's sad about it, though, about the growth of curling? There's no more cigarettes and beer cans on the ice. <laughs> the days when Ed Wernick could be on the ice with a, with a butt hanging out and a can of beer, those were the good days of curling, weren't they? With a Hudson Bay jacket and a broom that actually looked like it was from Margaret Hamilton and the Wizard of Oz. Yeah, I'm old enough to actually remember seeing players yep. smoking in the dugout in baseball. Well, that too. Yeah, Billy Martin and, uh, yeah. Uh, I want to jump around to a couple other things in sure. the time that we have. I don't know if you know the anniversary today, but on this day, four years ago exactly, it was announced that the Hamilton Bulldogs, the Belleville Bulls, were going to be moving to Hamilton and become the Hamilton Bulldogs, and Hamilton was going to have an OHL team. Uh, Four years down the road, on the scale, let's say of a 1 to 10 scale, 10 being the highest, 1 being the lowest, what what measure of success would you call the Hamilton Bulldogs? On On a level of 10, up to this point? Yeah. Uh, I I would give it a, I'd give it I'd give it an eight, and 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 it, I think it's approaching an eight. And I think obviously last year's championship has boosted that number in my opinion. I think I'm hearing more bulldogs talk. I believe that attendance is up this season, which is a good thing. Um, obviously, I would think it would be down in the last couple of weeks since the sort of. Um, you know, trading off of some veteran players to restock some of the youth, um, even though they're they're holding on and clinging to a playoff spot right now. But I think the expectation of the team is certainly not where it was last season. I think it's been a slow build for this team. Um, and I'll tell you this, and this is no secret, a new building would put that number a little higher, in my opinion. But I think junior hockey in this area, I think it's alive and well, Scott. You and I were both down in Toronto on the weekend for the MAC Women's Basketball Championship, and I'm not going to get into that today. We talked about it yesterday, and we've got some more coming up later in the week. But it it struck me as I was sitting there for the weekend in what used to be Maple Leaf Gardens, now the Madame Athletic Centre, and what they've done there. If you put... 
I think they have 3,000 seats in that bowl right now. If you had doubled that, made it 6,000 seats, that, the way that was set up, it would, it would entirely change how the Bulldogs operated and the draw they would be and everything else. That team would be filling that place every time. Absolutely. You just need a building like that, and boy, it, it, I couldn't help but think it most of the time I was there how different things would be for Hamilton Sports if they had a building like this. I, I, I'm totally, I, I mean, I, I can't believe anyone doesn't believe that, Scott. I, I remember being in high school many, many moons ago and going to the, Hamilton, the old Hamilton Steelhawk games up at the old, I guess it wasn't the Andrechuk Arena at the time, but the old Mountain Arena. And that place used to, like, standing room only. There was a little playoff run they had, and it was unbelievable. And going back to last week with the McMaster, with the U Sports National Championship, in the second half of that game, like, I mean, think back to the atmosphere of that building and how, and watching the game on television again when I got home, it sounded and looked great because you're right. It's very, you're very intimate. It's very close to the floor or to the ice. It's you're in tight together. There's there so many reasons why you would look at this. And so anyway, it, four years down the road, I, yeah, I'll give you a seven. I'll give the Bulldogs a seven to an eight. Certainly, the championship helps. But if you could have a proper size building for that team, they're probably a nine at this point. I, I, May, I eight, an eight you. to a nine. Let me go back to what the Montreal Alouettes sort of lucked themselves into when they were a real good team and had you know Anthony Calvillo and that one night where they double booked an Alouettes game at a U2 concert mm-hmm. and they decided to go to McGill Stadium and that set them up for basically eight about eight years of selling out that stadium based on just a smaller stadium, a good team, and the demand to be there. It was the place to be, no different than the Habs games. I wrote today in the paper, and I I absolutely believe this. I wrote it because I believe it. Again, what Toronto did, and it was Ryerson, and it was Mattamy, and it was Loblaws, and there were some other players in this as well, but what Toronto did, Maple Leaf Sports Entertainment had to be involved to give their blessing. What they did with Maple Leaf Gardens and what they've turned it into, anyone who has not seen it, if you're ever in Toronto, in downtown Toronto, because it's now Ryerson's Athletic Centre, it's almost always open. You can almost always go in and poke around. It is it is worth the time to do it. What they've done with that facility, and when you then look at First Ontario Centre and think what they could do with this facility, it's stunning. You you just you can't help but imagine how this could be done. Something similar here in Hamilton, and what you, with the positive things that could come from that. Well, absolutely, and I think what they've done nicely. I mean, you walk into that facility, Scott, as you know, the, the marble floors. Um, but the neat thing about it is the way they have divided. I mean, think about it. Anyone that is used to or remembers going to Old Maple Leaf Gardens, they've actually what made it into three different levels. You go into one level, and then there's a volleyball court and another volleyball court. You go up a further set of escalators, and there's the facility where we were for the National Basketball National Championship, which also doubles as a hockey rink yep. when you know, like it would in you know any of the major facilities. And, and you've you got know, a grocery store on the main floor and an LCBO, yeah. and you've got a medical clinic. I mean, there's a lot of different parts to this, and it it, it wouldn't have to be obviously exactly the same here. Maybe no. we don't need. I mean, maybe you need a grocery store. Maybe you don't. You could put a theater in there, or you could do. There's any number of things, 
But for the sports that we have, we've got a hockey team that doesn't need 18,000 seats no. or 17,000. We've got a basketball team. Whether you think the basketball team is going to work or not, is there's always going to be other teams that try. A 5,000-seat arena would work better for them. You've got events that come in that you could use this thing for. Concerts at a five or 6,000-seat arena, it just it makes so much sense. And you just your brain goes when you're watching an event like that and a building like that, and you go, this is exactly... Exactly what Hamilton needs. You know, I look at these games, and obviously, you and I, you know, share a kind of a love and a responsibility, obviously, with our with our uh, professions to to watch junior hockey. And boy, the London Knights got it right. That building, uh, that Budweiser Gardens, to me, is just a beautiful thing. Now, it's bigger uh, than Hamilton needs because it's by itself. London is off by itself, but the concept, the concept, yeah. is right. You know, like that. Uh, even you know what? Even I mean, I I know the Bulldog fans won't like this. But take a trip 20 minutes down the road to the um, uh, Meridian Center for the Ice Dogs. Or the Sleeman Center for Guelph. And and that place, that Meridian Center to me, like I've gone to a a couple games there. What an atmosphere. What an energy. Um, And they put, what what was it, probably 5,000 people in there? It's beautiful. And I don't know if we need much more. Now, I I mean, I guess maybe you probably want to go a little bit bigger than 5,000. Um, if there's an ability for that, because then I think you want to attract concerts and that kind of thing where 5,000 might not cut the mustard. But, boy, the city of Hamilton and what we're going through in terms of this revival of this city and, and people coming west uh, to put in a 75, 8,000-seat stadium to have the Hamilton Bulldogs. And, you know, do you remember the pride of the American Hockey League Bulldogs when they redid that, when they got help from the, Bulldog, from the Montreal Canadiens and they redid that dressing room? How amazing that was! You know that, that was a, that was a special thing, and I think to be able to do something like that uh, on a slower, a smaller scale for the Hamilton, you know, Bulldogs as a junior hockey team uh, in a much smaller arena would just I think would be just a cherry on top, and I think uh, would be a great thing to keep to continue to sell junior hockey. In well, and and one more thing before I jump to the last thing I want to get to, and that is the Maple Leaf Gardens redo cost seventy one million dollars. Now seventy one million is seventy one million. It's not nothing. But compared to building a new place, and it's a lot less. And also, they were working with historic. Yep. Um, you know, they they can't tear walls down. Certain things. I mean, you have to. You could do it a lot easier, probably, probably for less money if you were to do something like First Ontario Center. And as opposed to where they're at now, where they're talking about they're going to need twenty-five to thirty million in upgrades and maintenance that you're going to throw into an old building. Why not take that? There's a third of your, more than a third of the cost probably of a newer place or a rebuild that you're going to have forever. Anyway, we move along. It's, it's an interesting one. We're going to talk about it again, I'm sure. The last thing I wanted to ask you about today, I don't know if you saw this story. It is a sports story of sorts, but it is one of the most bizarre things that I've seen in a long time. There are dozens of people who have now been charged, people, coaches, schools, yes, yes. um, so in the States, a whole bunch of people have paid and worked the system, basically, to get their kids ent- into high-level universities, top universities, if their kids didn't necessarily have the marks or couldn't get in, whatever else. They've played the system, and whether it's with donations or whatever else, to get them into these schools, including some athletes. Felicity Huffman, who's married to William H. Macy, she was in a bunch of shows. Uh, people would know her to see her. I can't even think what she's been in, but she, a, a bunch of different stuff. Uh, Lori Lachlan, who was in Full House once upon a time. She was married to Jesse. Um, <laughs> all these. And, and 
the the reason I bring this up is because it seems as though for most of the people who are caught up in this thing, the way that they were able to milk the system was through the athletics department. If you said, if you could get the coaches to just send out some sort of note or validation that their kid was a good sailor or a good rower or on some lesser known athletic team that apparently nobody ever checked in on, you could get into the school with some sort of scholarship that the parent, it sounds like paid for the scholarship, but you got in. It just, it, it's an amazing story that speaks to a whole bunch of things about crazy parents, but also about the NCAA athletics. And I don't even know what all this speaks to. You know, and it's funny, Scott, because here, here I was when that story broke, I was like, wow. But then, you know, about, it, it took me all of 6.1 seconds to go, ooh, I'm surprised at this. A bunch of rich people, you know, paid off the NCAA and high-level schools to get their kids in. Ooh, should we be surprised by this? Well, no, but no, but yes, it's 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 not right. It's not correct. It is uh, unethical in many ways. But should we be surprised by this? I'm surprised. Well, yeah. Wait a second. I'm surprised by a part of this. I am surprised. Uh, two things. One, who some of the people are who were involved in this? Because you would have thought they could have got their kids in without having to do the, you know, work the system like this. Yeah, I know. But one of the things more than sports, even in the United States, one thing we know that carries cachet is fame. Fame gets you a lot of places. So the, I, but the other part of this was how (laughs) we're not talking just to be clear about basketball, about football. We're not talking about the sports where there's a billion eyeballs on you, but there is so much money in NCAA sports of all kinds that seemingly, you know what, if you can convince them that your kid is good at some obscure sport, rel- you know, relatively speaking, they are like, okay, great, yeah, bring him in. Doesn't matter. And nobody checks. They're, they're On some of these schools, it sounds like their rowing crew would have had 7,000 people on well, it. Of course, Scott. I mean, and, and, and that, was probably why, that was probably why it was easier to do and why they got away with it for so many years. Because this dates back so many years. Because it's it's... It, you know, it, it's 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 curling, it's rowing, it's it's not the big four sports where there's all this attention on and constant criticism of payers, players not getting paid, and merchandise. I mean, you're talking about B-level sports. No offense to anyone, but they're just not the big sports that draw all the attention and get you know all the generated uh, generation of money and and merchandise like some of the big you know hockey and basketball do. So this was probably an easy tuck away. But the schools also, the schools also like it's a tuck away for the coaches. Lori Lachlan, the one who was on Full House, she was Aunt Becky once upon a time. Just for those who really know their Full House, you remember this. Well, I just looked it up because uh, I'd never, I've never actually watched Full House except for maybe half an episode. Um, she apparently, according to the FBI, agreed to pay bribes totaling five hundred thousand dollars to get her. How bad a student was her daughter that she had to pay half a million dollars to get her into school? And the coach of apparently it's the coach of the USC crew team, the rowing team, or someone involved, I guess, took much of that money in exchange for saying, yeah, she's an excellent rower and we need to have her here at the school. Oh, of course, of course, of course. you got to have her on the team. Think of the money that came in there. 
Think about all those free dinners on regattas outside of their home, their home, you know, their home. Uh, what do you mean? I don't know what you call it. Their home arena. Yeah. It's a joke. <laughs> you mean? But again, why are we surprised at this? Ooh, like I said, ooh, the NCAA is corrupt, and a bunch of rich people got their way for many years, and it's now taken the time of federal investigators to uncover the madness. I hope they're embarrassed. Well, it's, it's more than embarrassed. I mean, it's it's uh, some of them potentially could be facing prison for this, which you don't think of this, but you're talking now about 500 grand. I mean, it's not a small amount of money. And, and no. The, the, there are some, uh, is it USC, they got $250,000 for a water polo uh, coach to say that the student was a great water polo player. The amazing thing to me is, Bubba, about this, among other things, there's so many parts about this that are stunning. But the amazing part uh, to me also about this is it does look like at these schools, they pay attention to football and basketball and maybe one or two other sports. But if you're down past the three or four or five top sports, it sounds like it's the Wild West. You can get away with almost anything. Because, like I said. No one's paying attention. There's no TV. There's no attention Nothing. to those sports whatsoever. I mean, think of what, what you said. I mean, I'm sure equestrian, uh, like you said, water polo. Rowing, like I said, I'm probably so curling in there because it's getting big in the United States. Like, I mean, no one's paying attention. But to how did? Stuff. Okay, so so the person who, and we only have a minute left here, the person who got the letter at the yeah. admissions office from the coach who says, "Hey, Lori Lachlan's daughter, and she's kind of famous." So Lori Lachlan's daughter is a fantastic rower. Do you not think at one point? With one of these, because there's a whole bunch of these people who are apparently doing this, at one point, someone in the admissions office, and I'm not blaming them, by the way, uh, would go to a, a regatta and say, hey, which one is Lori Lachlan's daughter? Hey, coach, which one is she, the one that, that you wrote me the letter about that was so ah, good? Come on, Scott. Those people are muzzled. They're puppets. Well. They're uh, puppets. These, this is this is this is well beyond that level of the uh, of the uh, of getting into the school. This is a high level. People are being paid off at the top level. No one in the lower levels. No one in the admission offices. They're being told what to do. They're puppets. You know what else this says to me? This is this is to me now. These people had enough money that they could do this, but this to me is the. The final, maybe not final, this is the highest level parental, competitive parental craziness that my kid has to, the, the, the helicopter parenting, all that kind of stuff where, you know, at one time somebody might've talked to the coach of the hockey team and said, my kid needs to be on the first line or needs to play with him or needs to be on the power play. This is that to the a thousandth degree now that I've got the money and my kid has to get into the good university and has to, this is, this is not even, I don't even know if the kids would have known this was going on. This is probably not, probably not, but, but I'm sure in conversations, it's like, you know what, son, I've got a friend. I've got a friend. Yeah. I'm asking for a friend. You know, I'm asking for a favor. We've heard of favors before. I got a friend that owes me a favor. Yeah, it's a, it's an unbelievable we'll, we'll, we'll story. Take care of this. It's an unbelievable story. I would encourage everyone to go and try and read it. Uh, the explanations in many of the stories are clearer than probably what Bubba and I have been able to break it down. Because it, I mean, it is complicated. But when you when you sit down and give it a good read, it's it's you can you can work your way through it. It's a fascinating story. Hey, appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this as always. Yeah, great chat as always. The Scott Radley Show weekday evenings from six to eight on nine hundred CHML.
The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.